disruptive innovations are led by innovators. They're the ones who, who see things before the rest of society see things. So I think there's a limit of what we as consumers can do. We should all recycle. We should all reduce how much we use. I think all of these things are really important, but we're not going to solve the problem by using less. We're going to solve the problem by creating new solutions, new systems, like I was mentioning, that look at this whole thing in a completely different manner. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Plastic is everywhere. The oceans, landfills, you probably know it's in our bloodstreams. Everybody promotes recycling, but it's not happening anywhere near the scale that we're producing it and pumping it into our world. Most people, it seems, are content to hope for the best. They hope someone else solves things. In the meantime, they don't change their behavior, and the situation that nobody wants continues. Some people, or more often companies, make a big show of showing they'll make a difference, but they don't. They greenwash or something like that. Rarely, you'll find someone who makes it their business to figure out what's going on and suggest what can be done. Today's guest, Jack Buffington, works in supply chains. He got a PhD in the field. He wrote two books on plastics, what works, what doesn't work, and what he sees we should do next. Without getting technical, we geek out on plastics. You know you wish you knew more. You're confused by them. We're all confused by them. This conversation will reduce it. I'm not saying we solve everything or even get close, but you'll see the situation more clearly. You'll know what those numbers mean. You know what we can do next. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Jack Buffington. Jack, how are you doing? Great, Josh. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. And... You know, you know a lot about plastic. Plastic is like front page headlines all the time. We know how much it's, we have some idea of how much it's affecting us, but I, I think most people don't know. We have lots of ideas of what to do with it. You have gone into a lot more depth and you've written about it than most people have. You've thought about what to do. You've written about peak plastic. You've written about the plastic myth. The, these are the titles of your books. And I think there's a lot of things that people do understand. A lot of people a lot of things people don't understand. I certainly learned a lot. And I wonder if the best place to start is, I wonder, how did you get started? And well, how did you get started in, in getting so fascinated? And how did you make it your world? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. So I've been working in consumer products now for quite a bit, probably 15, 20 years. I work for a big consumer products company and we generate a lot of waste, a lot of single use items. So about 10 years ago, this started to really affect me. I thought, you know, there's something that needs to be done about this. So I talked to my company and they agreed for me at the same time I was working for Miller Coors, the beer company, they agreed that I could work on a PhD in Sweden on a degree in material science and supply chain. So I chose Sweden because it's often known as the most environmentally friendly place in the world. And so I thought there's a lot I could learn there that I could couple alongside of my experience in supply chain to figure out what, what was really going on in this problem. 
when I got over there, what I found is the problem is more significant than I thought. I saw the Swedes doing all the right things. And oh, by the way, I heard about the thing you do when you're running and you pick up a piece of trash. Plugging. Which, yeah. <laughs> yeah, plugging. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, I've never seen anyone do that in Sweden. I went up to school way up north, 45 minutes south of the Arctic Circle. So it was almost too cold for people to run up there. Uh-huh. I ran back and forth to school and uh-huh. they thought that was a little strange when I did it. All right. I'm going to interrupt your story because I got to throw some color commentary in here. One is that for plug, actually one is for a, a friend of mine contacted me. I never talked to him about being on my podcast, although I was on his podcast and he said, Josh, I want to be on your podcast because he thought of something he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to ride his bike every day to, he's a principal. So he was going to ride his bike to and from school every day. Right. Sounds kind of cool. What I didn't mention yet is he lives in Alaska <laughs> and he just contacted me and he's been riding his bike to and from school in minus 40 degree weather. I don't know if it was like that in Sweden when you were running. Uh, I, and I, ran, I ran in minus 20, which was wow. old enough. And in the tip of the hat and with regard to what was the other thing? Oh, the plugging. You say you haven't seen people do it. And I've, how do I put this? I try to do it in a way that doesn't look like I'm trying to get people to look while I'm trying to get people to look because I want people to ask and so I can talk about it. But so far, no one's engaged me on it. <laughs> I like the fact that you, it's, a, it's a means of stretching while you're running. So that's really great because I, I try to run long distances as well. And if, if you have a reason for stretching, it's probably a good thing in the middle of a long run. Yeah. If left to my own devices, I prefer just to run long and straight or with curves and hills in Central Park. I really like that. And plugging, it's not stretching, it's lunges in the middle. Like suddenly at, an, at a random time, you lunge. And I try to keep it even between left leg and right leg or both legs. But yeah, it does, it, independent of the picking up garbage, it's an interesting twist on, on running. It is, it is. So anyway, I was there and I really observed how the Swedes recycle. I'm not sure how much you know about that, but they recycle everything. Um, everything is collected. They have about 10 different bins in their homes. So they clean their recyclables and they put them in the bins and then they have to take them to a central facility in order for them to be managed. Mm-hmm. The problem is for plastic, the plastic recycling rate in Sweden is maybe just a little bit higher than it is in the United States from a bottle to bottle sort of recycling process. The rest of what they do is they incinerate the plastic in a clean waste energy scheme. So they have zero land. Sorry, clean waste energy scheme? Scam. Scheme. scheme. Okay. Yeah. So what they do is they'll turn the waste, the plastic waste into electricity. They'll capture all the effluents so there's no waste, Um, but they're not doing what people think they're doing. They're not taking a piece of plastic and turning it back into another piece of plastic. And when you say capturing all the waste, is it, there's really no pollution coming out of this process? There's no landfilling. Okay. Is there stuff going in the air though? Well, it's, it's the effluents are being captured. So they, it's a very sophisticated incineration process. Uh-huh. So they'll, they, you know, in third world countries, they incinerate plastic and it's, it's horrible for the environment, right? Because, you know, if you're burning PVC, you know, the, all the, all the chemicals that are used in to make plastic, you know, escape into the environment, they're bad to breathe, they're bad for the air and everything like that. In Sweden, they, they capture those. Okay. And is it really a hundred percent? Or very close. Pretty close. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty close. It's mandated by law. And the Swedes are very conforming to that law. 
Uh-huh. Um, so when I showed up there, I thought, this is great. This is the way it should be. I can take this back to the consumer product world that I live in, and this is what we can do in the United States. The problem is it doesn't work. Um, it can work in a country like Sweden where there's 8 million people and it's a very rich place. Um, but 90% of all plastic that goes in the ocean is from developing countries in Asia. And they can't afford these sophisticated systems. Other countries like the United States will, will not even adopt these procedures. So a large majority of the world will not follow this. And even if they did, you still have to pull more fossil fuels out of the ground to create new plastic. Let me just check on a couple of things here. So the third world places can't afford it. I could buy that, although maybe the first world places could pay for it. I'm not sure. That's going to be a, a huge political hurdle. But if they're going to pay for it, they'd pay for it for themselves first. Now, why would the U.S. not do it? Because of cultural reasons. No. Well, yes, cultural reasons, but also it's not economically viable on how we, we seek to treat it. And so what I talk about in my book is the problem with plastic is not only the material, but it's the supply chain that creates it. So the supply chain is very efficient in turning a plastic uh, bottle into something that's so useful to you, but then is so useless after use. You said make a plastic bottle into You mean pl- make a plastic into the bottle that would be useful? Because if you don't care about what happens to it afterward, it's pretty handy. I mean, plastic is, it's cheaper than glass. It's more, it's, it's got a lot of advantages over lots of other things if you don't care about where it comes from, but it still costs energy and pollution to create. And you got to take stuff out of the ground to make it. Correct. What you said is very true. It's, and it's very useful in society. So what we don't want to do is throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't want to, so plastic is used for food safety Um, to provide food to developing world areas where they wouldn't be provided otherwise. It's able to provide clean water. It's used for medical devices. What we have to do is find a way uh, for the supply chain to be as efficient of bringing plastic to us as pulling it back away from us for in a closed loop system. So there's a a bunch of stuff you said there, and I can't help, but when I was reading your stuff, all those numbers in the little symbols on plastic I didn't really know what they meant. And then you really go into a lot, a lot of depth. And I didn't realize the differences between them. And you kind of touched on it. Do you mind? I found it very interesting because partly for me, if you say it again, then I'll get it more than just like, it, it, I think it takes more than once time, one time through hearing it. But maybe you could share maybe the, the main numbers. Okay. So the recycling numbers? And what the differences are between them because some were like hard and you know better than I do. Most people will recognize on a piece of plastic, there's a number that is from number one to seven with the chasing arrows on it. That's something called a resin identification code. So uh, number one is PET, number two is high density polyethylene and so on, right? And then you get into low density polyethylene, polypropylene, polyvinyl chloride, PVC, as people know it, polystyrene, which is like styrofoam. So there's six main categories of plastic. And then there's one category, which is category seven, which can be anything. Like other. It can be a condom. It can be wear a pair of glasses. It can be a um, CD. You name it. It can be just just about anything, and it doesn't really fit into its own category. Of those seven categories, there's only two categories that are recycled to any degree of volume. And that's PET, which is the plastic water bottles, and HDPE, which are the big uh, laundry detergent containers. 
those two are, are recycled about a 15 to a 20% rate. What were the numbers of those? Um, the recycling rates are anywhere from 15 to 20%. Oh, I meant the number inside the chasing arrow symbol. Oh, it's number one and number two. Okay. And by the way, it's it's picking up the hitting the table. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Right. Sorry, it was one and two? Correct. And those are the ones that are recycled, but appreciable is like 15%. It's pre- still very low, it seems. Yes. And so if you, if, if you look at it from an aggregate standpoint, it, it becomes a really big problem, right? Because people talk about recycling rates of being 15 or 20%, but in aggregate, it's actually lower than that. Because of averaging with all the others that aren't, Correct. that are even lower. Right. Huh. And so the reason why the recycling rates are so low is because it's not economically viable in order to be able to take that feedstock and turn it back into to reintroduce it in the supply chain alongside virgin material, unlike aluminum, which is 100% recyclable, an aluminum can is simply is just as valuable as virgin aluminum. Because it's just aluminum. It's an element. It's an alloy, right? Oh, an alloy. I thought it was, okay, so it's an alloy, but it's a basic element. If you, you melt it down, it's just as good as it was before. Plastic, you melt it down, it's not as good as it was before. Yes, and the reason for that is because plastic is a polymer, so you're taking two monomers and you're putting them together and you're creating these very long strands of a material mm-hmm. of, of, you know, it's just like a polymer that's in our body. But the problem is, is that in order to be able to reuse it, you have to use one of two techniques. One technique is something called mechanical recycling, where you essentially you grind it and you break it down, but it still remains a polymer. And the other method is something called chemical recycling, which is when you break the polymer back into its original monomers. And put it back together again. So that method is a lot more successful because you can basically turn it back into the same materials you had as before with a little bit of a loss, but it's very expensive in order to be able to do that. All right. So this is a background and thank you very much because it's, I mean, I know more now than before. I, there's more, I'll play more that I don't know, but at least I, I'm getting some idea of it. And if we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, is there a way to do that? Is there a way to save the baby? Yes. There's a short-term process and a long-term process. So the long-term process, I'll start off with the long-term process. The long-term process is we have to change both the material and the polymerization process. And that will happen. Material scientists will figure out how to create a plastic material that can be used as nature, right? If you think about materials in nature, there's no such thing as landfills because Waste in one process becomes a feedstock in the next, right? So that will happen. But the problem with that is that's going to take 10 or 15 years for not just the materials to be created, but the whole supply chain to replace it in a manner where it'll be affordable for people to use this um, sustainable material versus what we're using today. So the question is, good. Would it still be coming from oil? Would it be coming from plants? Or... It doesn't matter where it comes from. A hydrocarbon is a hydrocarbon. So if you think about it this way, today we have trillions of tons of plastic that are in our environment after 40 years of... So right now there's 370 million tons of plastic that are produced every year. So 70% of all plastic that's ever produced is now out in the environment, whether it's in a landfill or the ocean or whatever. So these are hydrocarbons that we could reuse. So if we think about it, instead of pulling fossil fuels from the ground or instead of using corn or some other, you know, 
some perennial crop in order to create these, we can use a combination of molecules. It can be plastic that's laying on the ground. It can be fossil fuels. It can be corn because it's all simply a molecule. And so is it a case that there are technologies that we know can work? It just takes 10 to 15 years to develop them and implement them at scale? Or are there some things that hopefully it'll work, but we're not really sure? Well, the the process of chemical recycling will work. So that is simply the process of creating a polymer and then breaking it back down in order to put it back together again. So these techniques do exist. Uh, we could use these techniques in order to be able to take plastic and be able to create it into to new molecules, new combinations of plastic. We have to create the supply chain today, which relies almost entirely on fossil fuels and is the are these big petrochemical companies that rely on rail cars of monomers to combine into polymers. So we need to create a new supply chain system that collects it, repurposes it in the same efficiency that we have in these big systems today. Is it being done anywhere? Is this all tested stuff? Because it's very easy for people to say, oh, this stuff will be, you know, one day this stuff will be recycled in some technology that'll be around in 10 years. So I'll just keep drinking what I was and, and using the bottles and, and great. The problem, someone will solve this problem. It's so quick. People are so quick to take any excuse they can to keep doing what they've been doing. And so if you say that, like, it, is it really the case that these are, I mean, is it being done? Well, it is possible. So I've, I'm working with a university that has technology that is able to, to take a, a PET bottle and turn it into monomers at a 97% yield, which means you take 100% of, of waste material and you, your end result is 97%. If you compare that to today's recycling rates of 20%, it's pretty amazing, right? But that's a small-scale pilot plant operation. It seemed like you compared two different things. One was the rate, if you have a bunch of plastic, how much you get back out of it. And the other is how much people will put in the recycling bin. Yeah, so that's the bigger problem. Not only, not only what people will put in, it's not a problem of what people will put in the recycling bin. If it has economic value, people will put it in the recycling bin or somebody or a waste picker of sorts will pick it out. The problem is, is that once you pick it out, it has no economic value and compared to our big plastic supply chain of today. So we've done a little pilot of like tiny scale. And so we have to create a supply chain that can scale up to what our petrochemical model can do today. We meaning your university project or we society? We society, we industry, we society. So Lots of things going through my head. Part of it is there's a lot of people who say that they've, there's a lot of technologies out there that could be, I mean, you're not saying this is the answer to everything, but it's the answer to one thing. And sometimes these things pan out and sometimes they don't. Sometimes when you try to scale it up, it turns out there's something really critical that makes it not work at a bigger scale. And if that's the case, you say maybe we shouldn't be using plastics at all because you seem pretty favorable on aluminum. Of course, that's got its other issues as well. I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying it's possible that we can save the baby and still throw out the bathwater because we can recycle plastic at a much higher – well, once we have it collected, then we can recycle it at a very high rate. The challenge is collecting it. Right now, there's no economic incentive to, for people to collect it. 
So I guess on the one hand, industry is not really doing a great job of not doing all they can to get it to motivate consumers to put it in the bin, in the proper bin. And then consumers aren't outside of Sweden and a few other places, consumers aren't really doing it so much. Actually, in Sweden, they're not doing it so much either. There's a lot of hurdles. Well, I don't think so. I think we just have to look at the problem systemically instead of looking at it as pieces and parts. So there are communities in the developing world that are collecting and repurposing plastic at a 78% rate, better than developing countries. And why is that? Because they've created an economic model of repurposing that makes sense. So the problem is, is that you have these little cases of, you know, this community in the Philippines, or you have this situation of what's happening in Sweden. But what you don't have is a model for how our supply chains work of how the materials are designed, how they're manufactured, how they're distributed, how they're being repurposed. And I think there's some progress being made on this because I think the companies that really matter are starting to look at this differently as opposed to we're going to continue to pull fossil fuels out of the ground, which could end up being uh, ocean plastic in the ocean in two years. I do think that, that when that model changes and that whole supply chain gets reorganized, all of a sudden you're going to look at this problem as, hey, we're wasting materials. So this is a this is a classic problem of industry waste. Okay. So when John D. Rockefeller was the big oil magnet a long time ago, he saw these flames shooting out of the sky and he asked somebody, what is that? And they said, that's polyethylene. He says, let's find a use for it. We don't waste for this company. So back then there was a model of not necessarily sustainability, but reducing waste. So if big companies and big supply chains can develop models that look at this from a waste standpoint to repurpose it as a molecule, as opposed to this old thinking that we have to pull it out of the ground in order to use it, you begin to solve the problem. Let me see if I understand you right, that there's, we have the technology to recycle plastic. We don't have a model to, and we don't have a model and therefore don't have an implementation of how to make it actually happen. So we have one step in a process, but we don't actually have the full process around it. And you are calling for people to figure out that model and then to implement it. So is that right? Yes, you're really getting it. The most influential people who can make this model change, who can make the supply chain change, are starting to begin to understand the difference between a feedstock having to be a fossil fuel versus a feedstock being a molecule. Which could come from old stuff that's already out there. That's right. So there's all, besides the systems perspective, one can create a model but not have a route to get there because oftentimes, because there have to... Incentives have to. So I guess it's not just a model for how the system would work eventually, but also how to implement it, how to get there. Right. You're hitting on a really important point here. So the way our supply chains work today, they're big global or national or even regional supply chains where you're producing something in somewhere very far away from where it's being consumed. So what happens is this piece of plastic that you buy at Target was made in China. And the repurposing of it back to China will never make any sort of economic sense. So as you change a supply chain to becoming more of a localized supply chain, which is where technology is moving away from globalization and more of, you know, 3D printing, more localization, the supply chain should be able to change where that material will be able to be economically repurposed. There's one country I'm working with in Africa where they get, their neighboring country, South Africa, is where they get all their consumer goods. 
So the problem is they have all this waste plastic and they don't have a purpose for it in their own country. So they basically ship it back free to South Africa. But if their supply chain model changed, they would be able to repurpose that. That plastic would now have value for repurpose versus today, the transportation costs are too big for that to happen. So for it to work, if technologically it can all work, it's still a major issue. I mean, to say the technology is there, it doesn't mean that we can get there. It doesn't mean we can't. I mean, we, we couldn't, it, it enables something. It still feels to me like there's a, this, these are like the people problems are generally harder than the technology problems. I don't think the problem's a technology problem. I think it's a structural, social, industrial problem of how we design our supply chain system. So we, we have a supply chain system today that's fostered on waste. So a, lot, a lot of the concerns of single-use plastic or disposable um, electronics that nothing's ever repurposed. So when the economic model changes for our supply chains to repurpose, then everything else changes with it. Well, one of the big things motivating me to make this podcast, the Leadership in the Environment podcast, as opposed to engineering in the environment or science in the environment, is that there's many sources that say, we know how to do this. We can do this. The question is not if it can be done, it's will we do it? And if the remaining question is, will we do it? That's, to me, still remains the biggest question. Like, one of the things that I I did a a post recently on... um, I took the train across the country because I'm not flying. And Amtrak is, to my mind, the third world train system for whatever the cause. It's it's like, it's half the speed of others. It's when it's late, it's measured on the scale of hours as opposed to seconds or minutes. And the trains make creaky noises and all the stuff. Okay. So there's definitely technology out there to have trains that run double the speed of Amtrak trains. No problem. But you can't, if someone thought, well, let's just bring the Japanese or European trains here and just put them here. And no, then you realize, well, the gauge is off. Okay, let's say we could just fix the gauge. Okay, but there's too many turns. And then, all right, well, how do we straighten out the turns? I mean, it turns that you can a train can only go at, say, I don't know, 80 miles per hour. Then you can't get a 200-mile, even if you have a 200-mile-per-hour train, it can't make that turn. So now you got to straighten that. Okay, if you're going to straighten that, you got to buy the land to, you know, to move it and, or maybe use eminent domain. And now suddenly you got decades of, of like no politician got elected on like, I'm going to use eminent domain to move Amtrak around. And that's changing systems is not impossible at all. I mean, that's what I'm here for, but it's a big deal to me. It's like, um, I've not looked at the supply chains for plastic. And so I don't, I'm speaking out of ignorance, but it feels like to say we have the technology is like, it still leaves I mean, certainly with trains, we have the technology to have faster trains, but we're not going to get faster trains in the United States between uh, New York and D.C. I don't know ever. I mean, it, the issue is not the technology. It's it's all this people stuff of like, I can tell you how to straighten out a train track. Yeah. So let me. Uh, so a train, Sorry, I just rambled there. <laughs> no, that's good. Your, your train example is really a business case, you know, because the cost benefit there to, to replace the train system. This is a little bit different. So in, in supply chain management, the goal is to reduce waste. So right now, the challenge is in this model, we're gro- there's growth through waste. And so as there becomes greater consumer adoption and understanding of the problem of waste, then there's more of a reason on, on a front-end standpoint, of a revenue standpoint, as well as the back-end of how much is being wasted for these, these companies to do something about it. And you're starting to see that. You're starting to see programs from Nestle 
starting to see programs from Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all the big consumer product companies knowing that this is what their consumers are asking for. So what they need to do, which is, which is not a system issue, not a societal issues, but they have to change structurally how their supply chains work in order to adopt this new model. So they don't have to invest in a whole bunch of technology. Like we already talked about, the technology already works. But you can imagine a, a supply chain system like Coca-Cola that provides soda all over the world. Changing that model is a paradigm shift. And that's the big challenge that, that they face, that Nestle faces, companies like this, Dow Chemical faces, ExxonMobil faces. It's the, the complete restructuring and, and paradigm shift of their business model. What motivates them to do that? Is it that consumers, presumably there'd be some cost savings in not having to get raw materials, but it seems like that cost savings would be small compared to the cost. Are there other things that motivate them? Yes. Um, consumer branding, I think, really motivates them. And the interesting thing that they have to face, though, in, in consumer markets is people discuss sustainability and say how important it is. But in the end, they always, they always purchase things with their pocketbooks. So companies like Starbucks, companies like Coca-Cola always have to be focused on that. But at the same time, if they raise the cost of their product, they'll lose market share. So the real true benefit of growth in the future is how do you accomplish both? So that's, that's what motivates them, knowing that, that increasingly this is going to become a problem. So why not turn it into an opportunity before it becomes too big of a problem? What would the opportunity – the problem is, is it consumers – don't like polluting. But on the other hand, if you raise the prices, then the company, if you, if you make it more sustainable, or if you, if you adopt these systems and someone else doesn't and your prices go up and the other one doesn't, then the consumers will buy the one that doesn't have these systems. And all you've done is lost market share and spent money. Well, it's, it's a little bit of a false narrative, though, to suggest that it either needs to be sustainable or cheap. So what the ultimate goal that they have in the future is to create supply chains that will grow their economic model through sustainability. This will be the model of the future. So it's they would invest in technologies that would lower their costs enough to pay for the investment. They'll invest in technologies that will reduce costs through reducing waste. And by reducing costs through reducing waste, they become more profitable and then they have a better sustainability story to tell their customers. Actually, even without telling the story, they'll have a cheaper product. Right. But at the same time, when they know that they're not contributing to adding plastic to the ocean and they're not contributing to all these dangerous chemicals that we're being exposed to, that's you can even charge a little bit more because consumers are willing to pay a slighter price increase for those sort of values. Yeah, certainly Patagonia is doing pretty well in the market and they're not cheaper, and, but they put a lot of effort into their supply chain and knowing. And, and, now, what and consumers they, will not pay for and they can smell out are greenwashing exercises where they profess to be sustainable and they're really not. It's marketing that's seen right through. Yes, I'm working on that. Yeah. So, and it seems that if the leader of a company says, oh, let's just figure out the sustainability stuff, but the leader, him or herself, does not act accordingly. I think people get the idea, well, they're not accountable. So actually, we're not going to be accountable either because all we have to do is say, it's hard for you. It's hard for us too. Right. That's a big issue for me. Or that's like where I'm working on. But that's an aside. Now, all of this is within the scheme of reduce, reuse, recycle. 
this all seems to be in the recycled domain or moving a lot of recycling into reusing. How does this fit with reducing? Do we still prefer to reduce packaging overall? And this is what we do when we can't avoid reducing? Or does it change that framework? I know you're not going to like this answer. I don't think reducing is the problem. In fact, I think, I think market, especially if you think about where the problem of plastic resides, it resides almost entirely in the third world. It resides in seven or eight countries in Asia that are, as they're middle, as they're, um, as they pull people out of poverty into the middle class, they're using the, the material that really gets in there, which is plastic. So those societies want to have the same middle class lifestyle as we have. So if we can create a model where people can, uh, consumer growth can continue, so mar- so companies continue to increase their market growth and everything like that, and these materials are in a closed-loop system, so we don't have to worry as much about reduce because everything's retained and, and kept separate from the environment, and if it does escape to the environment, it's safe, just like an ecosystem. An ecosystem grows when it thrives, right? So we don't want to reduce growth. We want to have growth that's in concert with how an ecosystem works, which means it grows sustainably with zero waste. So, I mean, there's still energy costs going into this. And I mean, it takes energy to do these things. And either that energy is coming from some other place or it seems like it's not zero. My gut tells me there's going to be leakage anyway. So I guess over time, in the, in the way that in a place where like New York, where you have um, deposits on bottles and cans, People collect the bottles and cans and return them. Okay, a lot of it is, what's the word, brought back in. Now, a lot of it's still making it out into the ocean, not on, not on the scale of, of the third world places that you're describing. So there's some leakage there. But presumably, say this really works, then there'll be more and more economic incentive, I guess, to collect from wherever. And smaller pieces and bigger pieces, it'll all be collected in some, some ways. And the cost of collecting it, it won't be people going around picking it up. There'll be like robots and boats and things like that. And over time... I presume that you're, you're envisioning a future in which actually we were getting less and less plastic out in, the, out in the world because there's reason to reuse it. We can do stuff with it. Right. So, and the energy costs are, they're part of it, but that's part of our system. It's not increasing energy use. In fact, it's decreasing some of it because we're not digging stuff out of the ground so much. Right. Now, to me, I haven't looked at it in detail. It feels like there's still going to be leakage and there's still going to be I'm not trying to challenge. I'm just trying to think my way through this. And uh, I guess I'm, ah, it's the geek in me being like the, uh, uh, but what about this? No, you know what? It's, it's the John Stuart Mill who says it's, uh, you know, an idea, even if it's, even if it's perfect, it's still, if it hasn't been challenged, you don't know. So what were you going to say? Think about. Yeah. So first off, the recycling system we have now is we go through all these steps of collecting money and all this stuff. And we collect this and we use 20% of what we collect. Right. So, that's the challenge of, of, of that model, of the whole deposit system. I think whether we like it or not. So whenever we think of these problems, we think of these problems from, from, our, from the United States or from Sweden or something like that. But what we have to think about is all the plastic growth is happening in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and it's growing through economic growth. Economic growth, when you pull people, as you know, as you pull people out of poverty, it improves the environment. Right? The best way to improve the environment is to have fewer people living in extreme poverty. The challenge you face there is now you have a waste problem of the middle class. So what you've done is create an equation saying pulling people out of the middle class will 
reduce extreme poverty, which will improve the, the environment because they're not dumping things in the rivers. But you're going to have to collect a lot higher percentage of that middle class waste and repurpose. So there will be some loss. But if you look at it on a scale standpoint, you're still going to improve dramatically by moving everybody into a middle class lifestyle as opposed to, you know, billions of people in the, in the third world living in, in extreme poverty. Well, you know, my personal experience of N equals one is that I, when I go to these footprint calculator sites, I use something like 10% of what the typical American does. And before, five years back, I used about average, as far as I could tell of what, well, I lived in New York City, so I'm in an apartment building, so I don't have to heat, you know, a bare apartment. You know, my neighbors are keeping me warm and I don't have a car, but I was flying. So, but my life is by my standards, better now than before. And so while we do, I do want people in other places who are suffering and have miserable lives, I want them to live less suffering, have less suffering and less misery, more happiness and joy. But I feel like the typical American is use something like a hundred times more waste than other places. And I'd like to, it seems to me that if we dropped by half or 75%, we could drop that amount without changing anyone's standard of living without changing anyone's happiness or what they're achieving in life. And that to me is reduction, not reduction of happiness, not reduction of community and, and, you know, living out your dreams and so forth. But there's so much waste that it seems like it's hard for me not to get off of reduction as being the major reduction of material waste, reduction of using things unnecessarily, producing things unnecessarily that we use for a little while and you're getting into a sociocultural issue. You know, like I mentioned to you, I listened to your podcast about uh, being a minimalist. And I think that's a fantastic issue that we should all take to heart. And I absolutely agree with it and believe it. And we should all think about that. I think that's just a different problem than the biggest problem that we're having with the environment. And again, I think uh, taking the developing the developed world on the side, hopefully we'll understand that, you know, you don't improve your life by having more things. In fact, like you said, you, you make your life better by having fewer things. Um, but that's that's a small part of this global problem that we're facing relative to plastic. The bigger problem is, is as people in China and Vietnam and Philippines and all want to live the same lifestyle, even your lifestyle today, um, they're going to consume a lot more materials. And so that's the piece that we have to create a, mo- a closed loop model in order to manage. And if we did that, um, at the same time, we're trying, you know, you continue to work to do good things to try to get people to understand how they should live their lives more fulfilling. Yeah, I think you can solve the problem in both ways. So, I th- all right. So when you contacted me and, and we, and I was looking at your stuff, I was thinking there's disagreement, but I don't think there's disagreement in, in what to do because I want less waste. You want less waste and I want more happiness. You want more happiness. To me, it feels like the bigger issue is people's perspective. Like, I want a closed loop, but I feel like the more we talk about closed loop, the more people start saying, great, the loop is closed. Let's just buy, 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 buy. And the way I put it this, if we have a system that's geared toward growth and growth, I believe, cannot last. I think it seems pretty clear on a finite planet. We can't, it can't last forever. And, and it's also geared toward externalizing costs. And so if you have a system that's based on these things and you make that system more efficient, then you'll create those results more efficiently, which means more overall, more pollution and efficiency. If you make things more efficient, then you run the risk of, of, of rebound effects where people start using things more 
And, you know, Uber was supposed to decrease the amount of congestion in the city and it's increased the amount of congestion in the city. And LEDs are on track to using more electrical power for lighting than before we were using incandescence. Incandescence used more than when we did whale oil. And so to me, it feels like, and I recognize we're getting off of plastics here, but this is part of why I wanted to get you on because you have thought this stuff through clearly more than most people and you know what you're talking about. And sadly, no one, I don't think anyone talks about what the conversation is that I'm trying to get here. And so I'm indulging myself and talking to someone who's thought about it more. Most people are just like, oh, it's recyclable. Great. Problem solved. So if we, to me, it feels like if we don't change the goals of the system, then we run the risk of making a system that achieves goals that we don't want more efficiently. So that's why to me, it feels like the bigger issue is, is the cultural issue. And if we simply make it more efficient, then we run the risk of, of having inadvertently more pollution than we had in the first place, even though we're being efficient at every stage of it. Yeah. So I think that's where it gets into two, two different perspectives. I mean, I don't think, I think everybody would admit that how we consume in the United States is wasteful. And these systems are built in order to waste and they grow only through waste. So that has to be fixed. And that's a cultural issue, right? So as a society, we have to understand that you don't become, you don't live a better life by consuming more things and you, and you don't get more happiness by the size of your, you know, your trash can at the end of the week, right? That being said, there's a whole bunch of opportunity around the world to clean up and to run a supply chain as you, as an ecosystem exists. So it's, it's not a complete meta comparison that we can continue to grow like the environment and continue to flourish because we live on a finite planet, like you said. But between now and then, there's a heck of a lot of opportunity to get there that we need to really focus on. So, you know, I'll leave it up for people like you who are a lot smarter than me to focus on the sociocultural and how we need to live our lives. I really want to focus people on getting waste out of our supply chain system because I think we're going to go a long way by doing that. And I also think we're going to, we're going to support the developing world in order to enable their waste, I mean, their growth to the place where they need to be to be a more functioning place to live. Okay, so if I get it right, then from your perspective, this is something, it's a here now clear problem. No one disagrees. No one is like, we need more plastic in the ocean. No one says, I hope no one says that. And so this is something, it's a clear and present danger. We got to work on it. We know what, there's something that can be done. There's every reason to do it. It's not simple. It will take time. And consumers can act by, is it certainly by choosing, well, how, how can consumers act? What's the... What can they do? I mean, they can contact the places and say, why haven't you changed this already? Well, so if you think about this, you think about some of the greatest innovations we've had recently in, in our times, they haven't been driven by consumers. Disruptive innovations are led by innovators. They're the ones who, who see things before the rest of society see things, right? So I think there's a limit of what we as consumers can do. We should all recycle. We should all reduce how much we use. I think all of these things are really important. But we're not going to solve the problem by um, using using less. We're going to solve the problem by creating new solutions, new systems. Like I was mentioning, that look at this whole thing in a completely different manner. So it's it's more of a call to action for tinkerers and thinkers and people to like. If you're thinking about working on something, here's a place to work on it. Maybe venture capitalists as well, university programs. I guess it helps for people. The more that people recycle, the more there's 
stuff like sitting there to be used, to be turned into new plastic. So everyone should recycle more. Right. If given the choice between two products, water from a faucet and a bottle of water, is should they favor the bottled water or should they favor the, the just getting from the tap? If they live in the United States, they should favor um, tap water. But if they live in Mexico, they'll be ended up drinking bottled water, right? Is that because of the safety of the water? Yeah, that's the problem is that some places don't have safe water. Um, even in Flint, Michigan, they're still drinking bottled water, right? So these devices have intentions, you know, true purposes. But in places like where you and I live, we should drink municipal water, right? Okay. And so you're a fan of my view. You don't disagree with my view. It's just not your focus. No. I think there's there's a need for someone like you. There's a need for someone like this problem is so big, we need to take different angles at it. Where my goal is to work with the big supply chain to reform it, to reduce this waste, which is creating all this catastrophe to the environment. That doesn't address how we as consumers consume. Okay. So, so that was a no meaning, no, you don't disagree. No. Okay. <laughs> that, and that was also a no meaning, no. You... <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. Okay, great. <laughs> this is like people listening are like, this is what happens when two geeks talk. If you don't mind my characterizing you as I characterize myself. I, I accept that. <laughs> Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So, all right, now I want to switch over to the part when, um, you know, everyone, all my guests, I like to ask, what motivated you to act on this stuff? Because you could you could do lots of other things and you, you decided to do this PhD. And I mean, Sweden's probably a beautiful place, although it must've been pretty dark for a long time. If you're that far North in the winter, what's the big deal? Why care about the environment? What, or what does it mean for you? What's well, well, first off, when you're in supply chain, you're, you're taught that waste is a bad thing, right? So just for my discipline, I know that this is the wrong thing to do, that I see consumer product companies growing on things that we're taught that shouldn't be happening. So that's number one, is that in my discipline, this is what I was taught. Secondly, you know, I've had a nice career in my life. I think that it's important for people to understand that there's, there's bigger things than yourself, right? I have, a, I have two young daughters. I want to make sure that they have a life that is as happy as mine, and I want them to have an environment that they can live in. So I think there's, these are a call to arms, and I felt like I was in this unique position um, of being both in supply chain and research that... I think I forgot who it was that said this, but they said those who have the opportunity to know have the responsibility to act. So I felt like because I was given this knowledge, I have to do something about it. I can't just just you know do stuff that's good for me and ignore what I see that's happening in the world. So I heard three big things, if I understood you right. The the knowledge was of these processes that are available. The being in the field that you are gives you the, the values of not wasting and maybe also values you had before that put you into that field. And then you have children that make it bigger than yourself. So it's not just like, oh, this is kind of an interesting thing, but this is a big thing. Right. And so, and that motivates you, that propels you, if I understand you right, to write the books and get this stuff out there. Right. 
So one of the things I ask guests on the show is to give their values, if they, once they share their values, to act. I invite them at their option, at your option, to act on this value of yours, to do something that you might not already be doing. And it's not to save the world. It's not, it's not you have to fix all the world's problems overnight, but something that most people have stuff in their mind that they're like, I've been meaning to do that. And, but something to act on the value, to make a measurable difference, but that isn't telling someone else what to do uh, and something not, that you're not already doing. I wonder if you'd be game to give that a shot. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I think, I think you get to a point in your career where you have felt like you've accomplished, you know, it's kind of like Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, right? You've done something that's supported your family. You've done something that, you know, you've made your life comfortable. And you get to this point of self-actualization. Like, how do you, how do you become a better person? How do you live the values of how you want to teach your family? You want to teach your kids on how you should live, right? So you can talk about them or you can embody them. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes the best way of living your values is doing something that demonstrates that. And so I can talk about these things or I can, I can write a book and try to change, you know, companies or change societies or something like that. So I look at it as, as, you know, in my, in my job, I'm paid to get things done. And I kind of look at that now at this stage, I have to get my values done. Mm-hmm. I can't, can't just explain them to my daughters. I have to actually live them. And, and this is the way that I choose to do that. Yeah. People keep saying lead by example. And I find that leading by example doesn't work that well in this area because people see me doing things and I'm like, look, I'm happier than I've ever been. And like, well, that's great for you. On the contrary, there's something that I just coined this term talking to someone else on, a, on an episode. Unleadership by unexample is a huge veto. If people don't live it, then everyone else is like, no one will. It's, someone has to really work hard to overcome that. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is, is have people sh- act on it and share it in order to undo that feeling of, you know, if I act but no one else does, then what, what I do doesn't matter. So they can see, oh, people are doing it. And so, I mean, that's why I'm inviting you. Does anything come to mind of something that you can do that that you could do. Well, there's one other thing I wanted to say that I, I think you embody these, these, uh, this perspective is I think it's important in life to make yourself uncomfortable and that's how you grow. So I'm not a chemist. I'm not a material scientist. I'm a supply chain guy. And so the other reason why I took this project on is because I wanted to push myself in an uncomfortable situation. Mm-hmm. So I use this project as an opportunity to grow. Well, I take up the challenge of challenging you <laughs> and I'm looking for something for something concrete that you can do. Like, like uh, some, well, there's a few projects that I'm working on in developing communities to put this into practice. So, well, I don't want to presume where you're going, but it's what I look for is people doing stuff that they themselves do as opposed to having others do, because there's, you know, there's a lot of people telling other people what to do. And I find it, I'm not going to stop them but I'm looking for people to do things themselves. Yeah. So one thing I mentioned to you at the beginning is I'm looking to minimize my life, looking at understanding how I consume and teaching my daughters that. How's that sound? Well, it'd have to be you doing it. It's something concrete that you could do for them to observe if it was to, or to do with them. Like a couple of people have done stuff of like commuting, driving less. And so they ride their bikes more. And then they they in the process, they end up going cycling with their kids more. Or um, some people, like, they'll do something like pick up trash and then, like, a relative will visit and they'll, like, go out and, and pick up trash with their niece. 
and which ends up being, as they've shared it, they're like, oh, this is really cool. They like it. And so I like to get it to a smart goal, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-based. Yeah, I, th- I think the challenge with that, the reason why I'm struggling a little bit with it is I, I, it's, it's like the intentions of where this solution needs to go, it's beyond us. So I do, all the, I do a lot of the things that you're talking about. You know, we talk about recycling. Um, we talk about the problems with waste and we talk about those things. But like I mentioned earlier, I don't, the problems aren't there. So, you know, my big initiative is to try to go to a developing community and reduce their waste, you know, to try to, to give back in that sense. So I'm not, there's that, but this is something different. And I mean, I won't push too much and I don't have authority over you. You know, I can't make you do it. But I think that if you take on some challenge and make your, in your words, make yourself uncomfortable, and then w- what I do is if, if someone does, if someone agrees to this, then we say, let's talk about it next time. I, I say, will you come back another time and talk about what the experience was like? And then you know, it's different for everyone, what they get out of it and how it goes. But I would hope to give you the chance to share with listeners what your experience was like doing something that you wouldn't have done otherwise. And that you personally do. What I've been trying to do is eliminate as much plastic from my life as I can. Just any single-use plastic, no longer use it. So what if you did something like that for a spe- like a, a specific period of time? Because if you say for the rest of your life, it's really hard to, it gets pretty nebulous. Right. Would you be game for doing that for a certain period of time and then sharing your experience? Sure, definitely. Okay. How about they do it for this year? Okay. Let the, now we're on video. And so people can't see that you're smiling right now. And it looks like a genuine, like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Is that how I characterize you? Yes. Okay. How long would be a sufficient time that you felt like, and now I could really talk about the experience. I'd say it'd be a couple months. Wait a minute. Are you going to go for a couple months without plastic? I'm going to try to eliminate all single use plastic. Oh, single use plastic. Okay. Ah, so like, as we're speaking now, I have like a pen in my hand. So that's not single use, right? Cause, and my computer I use pencils, so I use pencils, so I don't. So, but like your cell phone has a lot of plastic in it, but that's not single use. Right. Okay. So you would eliminate things like if you're at some cocktail party and they bring out hors d'oeuvres and there's a little plastic toothpick thing, you will not use a plastic toothpick. Right. But if they bring out a plastic cup, but it's a reused one and you know it's going to go in a washing machine, then that's okay. Right. Okay. And so would you up for scheduling a second conversation to share the experience? Definitely. Yeah. Let's okay. do that. All right. So we'll do that after we finish this, after we stop recording. So okay. not that that's not really enjoyable for the listeners. Okay. Good. Sounds good. Okay. And, and it's something you want to do. Is it something like if I imposed on you too much, I, I felt like I was pushing a bit. Well, I, like you said, I, part of the challenge is to live the word. So I want to take on the challenge. So definitely. Yeah. Uh, now I really want to hear how it goes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to wrap I must, up. I must admit I've done well in that in the past. You have not or have? I have not. I think a lot of people listening are thinking themselves, you know, I want to do something like that. And I think they'll be glad to hear how it goes. And it's a very different story to hear someone trying than a lot of people are just like, well, I don't know. People go around in circles for a long time without actually acting. And when they hear someone act, that makes you a leader. Right, by example. Yeah, yeah, a role model, I guess. And uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up before wrapping up? Um. No, I think you covered it all. This was, this was a great conversation. Like I said, it was, it, we really geeked out here. Didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I hope that it was valuable for listeners because a lot of the plastic, I mean, I urge people to read the books. 
because you're going to learn a lot more about plastics than we could possibly cover here. And it's a big part of our lives. And I didn't really realize the difference between them. And, and it, it's, still, it's still confusing, but I don't think that's because of your books. It's less confusing now because of them. But man, there's a lot of types of plastic out there, especially that number seven. It's like, that seems like a big mess. It is. It is. And is there anything you'd want to say? I mean, we'll, we'll get to talk again, but is there anything you'd want to say to the listeners directly? Um, well, I would like to say that this is a big problem. And when you think of a big problem, the, the one reason I wrote the book is because everything's a soundbite or a tweet right now. And in order to solve a problem of this magnitude, you have to go deeper than, than sound bites and tweets. So whether you read my book on a topic of, of something like that or something else is that try to dig into topics to better understand than just, you know, surface answers or questions to problems. I can't add to that. It is challenging. Well, Jack Buffington, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. When Jack contacted me, I was concerned about his recommendations, which you probably heard, which is why I pushed back. But his book showed so much detail and understanding, I had to bring him on. I'm glad to have learned from him, and I hope you did too. I'm glad to have pushed him a bit because I got to learn things that I didn't understand beforehand. I hope that was the case for you as well. I also like that people who understand the science and engineering behind things, when they really understand it, they don't get bogged down in it. On the contrary, knowing the numbers and using those numbers to make priorities liberates them from getting bogged down in it. And they talk about substance, which is what I heard Jack do. Anyway, I can't wait to hear his personal experience with avoiding single-use plastics and how that experience goes. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating Others should act first or making excuses to the empowering, I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.